Welcome to Credo, with me, Father Andrew Eban, to the podcast journeying through the various articles of the Creed, the fundamental statement of our Catholic faith. The article this week is a very short one, just seven words, a short article about eternity, and his kingdom will have no end. Jesus and eternity. Last week we were discussing the last day, the day of judgment. And following on from that, I was going to use this week's article as a springboard to talk about heaven and hell. But mainly I'm afraid it's about the latter, all about hell. I say afraid in that apologetic way because some people do get uncomfortable about hell. But it's good perhaps to ask why that should be, and indeed why and how a loving God and the place called hell can coexist. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. I started just with the word eternity. So perhaps we could start by admitting that the modern world is not very good with eternity. We tend to reduce life to what we can experience here and now. This is why, for example, people have bucket lists. That phenomenon of the bucket list reminds me of St. Augustine, who travelled across the known world in search of meaning and significance to his life before finally discovering it, and discovering God, within himself, so to speak, within his own neglected inner life. St. Augustine, in his travels, had been following his own kind of bucket list, if you like, which could not satisfy him. And I suppose you could say that the idea of a bucket list is that my life will somehow be complete if I succeed in ticking off enough experiences. Now, I think I understand the desire for those experiences. I just want to observe that this is very much the initiative of a secular mindset. It measures the value of our life by what we can experience here and now, so that life becomes a collection of experiences rather than being directed to anything wider, anything that transcends earthly life. So very much focused on the here and now. By the same token, I think we can say our culture is not particularly good at, or particularly capable of, looking towards the end of life, or indeed beyond it. We don't like talking about death, in part because we see it as the end of everything. It depresses people. The paradox is that we have reduced life to the small compass of the here and now, And yet, having reduced it, we don't want to see beyond it, or indeed to see clearly the limitations we have imposed upon it. All in all, then, for us in the modern world, it's quite a challenge to get our heads around eternity. You might say it's equally a challenge for us to get our heads around God's promises, which are likewise, of course, eternal. The formula in the old penny catechism of the church used to say this, and this is how the old penny catechism, the old question-and-answer catechism of the church used to begin. Who made me? God made me. Why did God make me? God made me to know him, love him, and serve him in this world, and to be happy with him forever in the next. A fundamental Christian promise, which is to be happy forever with God in heaven. Now, it strikes me that an age that struggles to relate to eternity is not going to be greatly moved by God's promise of eternal happiness, of enjoying eternal life with him. 
Can we get our heads around this invitation, as I say? Does it make any sense to us? Is it a real incentive? Of course, eternity goes with God, so to speak. It is a concomitant of divine life. You can't be divine and not be eternal. You can't be truly divine, that is, and be bound by time. So if we are to be united with God, if we are to enter fully into the divine life of God, we enter into eternity. Eternity is the natural condition of divine life. It's not as if heaven lasts a long time because it is nice, and that niceness is even nicer because it goes on forever. No, heaven lasts a long time because it is God. And hell, for that matter, we might go on to say, lasts a long time because it is not God. Now here's another thing that the modern world struggles to get its head around, the idea of hell. We have big problems with hell. We have problems in the church with hell. Priests are legendarily reluctant to preach about hell. Maybe they think it makes them look bad, makes them look judgmental or censorious. Maybe it just depresses people. But here's the thing. Jesus, Jesus who is our great high priest and for that matter our model preacher, Jesus himself talks a lot about hell. And I mean a lot. It's a consistent feature of his preaching and teaching, preaching about hell. So, a few examples. Uh, Jesus says that those who sin shall be liable to the hell of fire and run the risk of being thrown into hell, into the fire that is never quenched. He warns us against the devil, saying, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, in all these passages are English word hell translates uh, the word that Jesus uses, which is the word Gehenna. Gehenna was a place, uh, the valley of Hinnom, or Gehinnom, south of Jerusalem, where the rubbish and the dead animals of the city were cast out and burned. So a place of continual fire and a place under curse in Jewish tradition. We should perhaps observe uh, that Jesus is using the word Gehenna as a symbol of hell, so he's not saying we all go to a horrible valley south of Jerusalem. Uh, and that should be obvious by what he says about the devil who destroys both soul and body in Gehenna, i.e. the devil destroys body and soul in the place of eternal suffering, not in the valley outside Jerusalem. And, okay, then just one more example. There are lots of these. Uh, Jesus warns us that at the end of time, the angels will gather out of the world all those who do iniquity and throw them into the furnace of fire where they will weep and gnash their teeth. So, a lot about hell. Warnings that Jesus repeatedly returns to. Now, I appreciate, I think, people's discomfort with this. Why should? The sign of a loving God, Jesus Christ, who is love incarnate, bang on about hell all the time. Or let's cut to the chase. Can the idea of hell and all the horrors associated with it coexist with the idea of a loving God? Can the reality of hell, for that matter, coexist with the reality of a loving God? Why would a loving God need hell at all? I'd suggest that one way to approach this is not to ask why hell should exist, 
but to do the opposite and ask why hell shouldn't exist. Some issues are clearer when you approach them backwards. So instead of trying to justify why hell should exist, it's actually quite helpful doing the opposite and trying to justify hell not existing, because that, in its own way, is problematic. So here's a classic liberal formula. This is something I heard a liberal Protestant Christian ministers say, and this is not an attack on them, by the way, because I think it's a really interesting point, an interesting summary of their position, of the liberal position. So this minister said, I'm a liberal Christian, so my hell is empty. Okay? I'm a liberal Christian, so my hell is empty. Uh, Very beautiful little formulation. But now what does that imply? Again, I think I can understand where it's coming from. So this would be, God is so nice that he can't possibly send people off to hell. But let's just step back for a moment and think about the implications of this. One of the really important contributions of Christian theology to the world is the idea of freedom. I don't just mean political freedom, though that, of course, is very important. I mean fundamental freedom of will, human freedom of will, the idea of free will. And one of the reasons why Christianity develops and privileges the idea of freedom is because Christianity is a religion of love, which teaches that man is created in the image of likeness of God, who is himself love. Now, freedom is a prerequisite for love. You cannot be forced to love. Love that is compelled is not love. We know this from fairy tales. If you give someone a potion to fall in love with you, it's not the real thing. Uh, We know it more seriously from our own civic and secular society, which quite rightly views compelled love as a criminal offence, whether that's forced marriage or indeed rape, and penalises it accordingly. The same principles apply, and indeed derive from, the practice of the Christian faith. So, for example, a Christian disciple, as the very first page of the Catechism says, is someone who has welcomed Christ's call and freely responded to it. Freely responded to it. If you're forced to follow Christ's call, it doesn't work. You can't be forced to love the Lord. So to go back to our question about eternal life and heaven and hell and whether hell is in fact empty, to be sure... God, as we mentioned earlier, has created us in order for us to be happy with him forever in the next world. But he cannot force us to be with him. You might say, as I suggested earlier, that God is far too nice and loves us far too much ever to want us to go to hell. And of course that's true. But he can't force us not to go there. He can't force us, that is, to go to heaven. As the Catechism says, we cannot be united with God unless we freely choose to love him. And if God loves us, he loves us enough to respect our freedom. To respect our freedom to reject him. And that is the problem uh, with an empty hell, the problem of trying to justify hell not being there. It turns God into someone who compels people to love him. And we have a word for that, and it's not a very nice one. If we keep this perspective in mind, God's respect for our freedom to reject him, what that perspective does is to highlight our choices rather than his. 
This is why, for example, when you read the Catechism, uh, the Catechism's discussion of hell speaks of our free choice. And similarly, the Catechism in its section on Christ's judgment of the living and the dead speaks of our rejection of his grace. So the Catechism says, uh, by rejecting grace in this life, one already judges oneself. Isn't that interesting? One already judges oneself uh, and can even condemn oneself for all eternity by rejecting the spirit of love. So in this light, our judgment is of ourselves. We do it to ourselves. And then again, in the section in the Catechism on Hell, uh, this is paragraph 1033, to die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting God's merciful love means remaining separated from him forever by our own free choice. This state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed is called hell. So notice again that word self-exclusion. Once again, the emphasis is on us doing it to ourselves. But before we all get weighed down by how onerous the responsibility of that freedom is, how frightening the thought that I might misuse that freedom and condemn myself all eternity, I just want to end with a couple of final thoughts about sin and freedom. First one is this. The church has a proper sense both of the limits and of the possibilities of human freedom. By the limits of human freedom I mean this. People are only completely responsible for and bound by their choices if they make them in complete freedom. So, for example, a woman is not responsible for her marriage if her father or mother is standing behind her with a shotgun. That is not a marriage freely entered into, so in the church's eyes it doesn't count, the sacrament won't work. Or to take another analogous example, people are not always completely responsible for their ignorance or for the decisions they make in ignorance. So, for example, if I am brought up in a secular, non-Catholic home, and I go to a secular, non-Catholic school, and all I encounter online or on the telly is secular, non-Catholic programs and music and discussion and culture, am I really responsible for my failure to know Christ and respond to his grace? Can I really be held responsible for rejecting a church and a saviour I know next to nothing of? Do I have a meaningful choice? And there are so many examples of this in our present-day culture. But let's also uh, consider, alongside this, let's not forget at the same time, as I said, the possibilities of human freedom. Jesus, we might say, is always knocking at the door of the soul. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking, as he says in the book of Revelations, and he respects our freedom to open or shut the door. It's up to us if you'd like to do the opening. But very often, he only needs us to open it the very tiniest chink, or indeed to open it at the very last moment. If you're oppressed by the thought of how hard it seems to get to heaven, remember the first person Jesus invited there. The first person Jesus invited into heaven was, of course, the thief on the cross beside him. A liar, a thief, a man who by his own account is rightly punished for his crimes, he is 
the man who at the very last moment of that life of crime confesses his faith in Christ and is invited by him to share new life in heaven. Today you will be with me in paradise. And as St. Paul tells us, we need to remember that it is the will of God for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So just one last and very important point. Prudence tells us, my own experience tells me, I am a sinner. I am liable to sin again and again, turning away from God as every human except Our Lady has done. What is the recourse for me? Go to confession. Jesus Christ is waiting there in the confessional. Jesus Christ and his saving grace. Jesus Christ who tells us himself that he came not to condemn the world, but to save it. Go to confession. Thank you so much for joining me for what has been a long episode this week, but do please join me once again next week for the next episode and the next article of the Creed. May God bless you all, and may he specially bless that journey of discovery we make together into the beauties of the Catholic faith. Amen.